I V M. The 21st century was supposed to be the Asian century, but is it really? What is Trump's policy towards Asia? What regional order is in the U.S. interest? Will groupings like the Quad actually work? Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsini Hariharan. Through his election campaign, Donald Trump stressed that American allies in Asia were taking advantage of the U.S. This led to worries in the region about the shifting of U.S. priorities. But in late December, the U.S. Congress introduced a new bill, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. As you may guess from the name. Its sole purpose was to shape U.S. security policy in a way that would increase the trust of U.S. allies and partners in the region. But that got me thinking: What are U.S. interests in the Indo-Pacific? What are its aims and objectives, and how is it meeting those? My guest for today is the perfect person to answer some of these questions. John Shaus is a fellow in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Before this, he worked in the Defense Department at the Pentagon, and he's worked extensively on Asia-Pacific security and U.S. defense policy and industry. Let's get into my conversation with John. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a great new week of shows on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. And if you're not by now, why aren't you? You really, really should. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This week, we got a couple of new shows launching. The first one we have is ATKT Talent Ten. The show is hosted by Rohit P. Man Pereira and Krupa Goel. They're joined by the best talent from college classrooms across the country. Tune in every Tuesday for music, poetry, and fun ramblings. Business Start Next by Bloomberg Quinn. Learn about what it takes to nurture a culture of constant innovation in business and shape an organization. It's hosted by Govindraj Athiraj, and new episodes are out every Tuesday. The Equity Sahi podcast is brought to you by the Motilal Oswal Asset Management Company. It's hosted by our very own Anupam Gupta and offers deep investment insights into sectors and stocks in a simple way. New episodes out every Tuesday. On Cyrus Says, sports presenter and commentator Ronak Kapoor talks about how his school life shaped him for the future, how sports commentary has evolved, his experience at the Cricket World Cup in Australia, and more. On Pesa Vesa, Anupam is joined by financial educator and money mentor Mrin Agarwal to discuss investor behavior and the importance of creating a financial plan. On the Ronnie Spruwala podcast, Dreaming with Your Eyes Open, Ronnie talks to me about his early life, moving from Grant Road to Bridge Candy, organizing a rock concert in his youth, and taking calculated risks in life. On Dating is Garbage, Abbas and Janam talk to Zain and Avanti, the hosts of Marbles Lost and Found, about the role of mental health in a relationship. On What a Player, Akash and Siddharth are joined by fellow comedian Mikhail Almeida to discuss the last week of the ongoing cricket league before the playoffs. On The Habit Coach, Ashton talks about financial health, the relationship one develops with money, and how it leaves an impact on our body. On Pulia Bazi, Pranay and Saurabh talk to Shambhavi Nayak, a fellow at the Takshashila Institute, about gene sequencing and how it's changing our understanding of heredity and human history. And with that, let's get you on with your show. John, welcome to the show. Hamsini, thank you for having me. This, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think in, it was 2012 when they said it was America's Asian century, and there's been so much about the rise of Asia and where it's going. But relations between U.S. and this region, call it the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific, whatever it be, has been very constantly changing.、Um, How do you think it has evolved post the Cold War? The U.S. role in the Asia Pacific, its view of the Asia Pacific, the Indo Pacific. Now, if you're a defense person, 
I think has been consistent. And the, the way we talk about it has changed. Uh, the words we use uh, are inconsistent, but the approach and the goals remain pretty similar from, you know, at least 1990 through today, if not before. And I think the, the current formulation in U.S. policy, at least the free and open Indo-Pacific, captures the objective. Uh, I think the United States wants a, a region that is free from coercion, from interference, uh, that where countries have the opportunity to pursue their objectives, their peaceful objectives, uh, free of intimidation and coercion, where they have their sovereignty is respected. They are uh, able to operate as independent, equal states uh, vis-a-vis their, their neighbors and peers, and where the region is allowed to interact and trade and culturally exchange and all these other things without some sort of imposed structure or some system that advantages some and disadvantages others. And I think that's been consistent. All right. So what are the challenges to these objectives of what the U.S. has wanted in uh, this region? I think like many U.S. objectives, uh, it's an idealistic goal. So it's one that will be difficult to achieve in its totality. Uh, So if we think about sovereignty, for example, Sovereignty is at one time internally generated and created, but on the other hand, it has to be externally respected for it to be consistent. And setting aside issues like the South China Sea right now, or the East China Sea, or uh, India's northern and western borders, most countries in the region have some level of territorial dispute with at least one of their neighbors, right? So sovereignty as a territorial question is not resolved. So I think working through those, and we have seen some progress in in parts of the Indo-Pacific, but clearly not in all cases, that's one challenge. The broader question, I think, for sovereignty and independence and freedom is, are countries willing and able to operate and exchange with one another as equals? And I think 25 years ago, the answer was probably Uh, 15 years ago, the answer was maybe. And I think the evidence right now suggests most countries are, but some countries aren't. And it is not unique, but uh, China's approach in the region, I think, is increasingly aggressive, increasingly coercive, and it is increasingly based on China's interpretation, recent interpretation of China's position in the world, not based on a sense of what is a commonly understood definition of sovereignty, of territorial integrity, of equal interaction between nations. There's, a, I think, a different dynamic going on with China specifically, but there are challenges on other countries as well. All right. When we're speaking about the regional order in Asia, what kind of regional order would be in America's interests? I think that's a great question. So what, what regional order is most in U.S. interests. I think an order where countries are free to engage in commerce, where they are free to engage in intellectual pursuits and research and development in a whole range of human endeavor that leads to progress, Mm -hmm. uh, economic, social, personal, societal, to the extent that individuals and countries do that and the order, whatever order however we want to describe it, exists, uh, can do that, I think that will be helpful. 
on it. So you won't like use terms like bipolar or multipolar or figure out who the poles are in that sense. I don't think to me that that is a secondary question. And the the polarity piece or the primacy piece or however that frame is presented to me is about which countries are supporting uh, individual opportunities, societal progress, national uh, engagement mm-hmm. as equals, and which are offering alternative approaches. Mm-hmm. And so whether there's a multipolar system moving in the same direction or a bipolar system moving in opposite directions, I think is a secondary piece to a, a broader question of what should what should people and countries be able to engage in mm-hmm. and who who is able to establish or enforce those rules. Particularly regarding defense, America has an interesting relationship with countries in the region too. If its allies are there, um, Australia is there as a middle power, um, the ASEAN as a regional bloc has always been one that's tried to punch above its feet. Mm -hmm. And then you have countries like India and Pakistan. It's just a whole mishmash of uh, jigsaw pieces. Mm -hmm. How would you say uh, America's defense posture has been uh, with each of these countries uh, to meet the challenges of the region as whole, as a whole? Sure. America's defense posture in Asia, I think, largely, in its current form, largely began at the end of World War II. Right? We, we established a large military presence in Japan. Shortly thereafter, there was the Korean War, and we've had uh, U.S. troops in Korea ever since. And Japan and Korea, as you mentioned, are two best-known allies in Asia. Uh, But they're not our only two. Australia is also a treaty ally. The United States and Australia have fought in every war together since uh, World War I. And the U.S. also has a treaty relationship with the Philippines, where we will defend the Philippines uh, if they are attacked, subject to certain provisions. So the U.S. has a pretty broad uh, defense posture in Asia that's been long-standing, but the relationships and the security relationships are deeper and, and as you point out, evolving. And I think the reason they're evolving is countries across the the region, the Indo-Pacific region, are looking at not just where the, their country has been, but where their country wants to go and what that security environment might be in the future mm-hmm. and are starting to test ideas about what relationships will help them advance their own interests? Mm-hmm. And so I think if we think about possible security risks uh, in the region, let's think about the Indian Ocean for just a second. Fifteen years ago, 12 years ago, one of the bigger rising threats was piracy. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a coalition formed to fight piracy in, in the Western Indian Ocean, and, and it's been largely successful. Piracy in part thanks to that, in part uh, because of changes in other uh, regional security dynamics, no longer a major threat. And I think we're seeing the U.S.-India defense partnership grow, the broader U.S.-India bilateral diplomatic relationship grow, because at least for the past 10 or 12 years, uh, in varying ways, India has seen its future as different from its past. Mm -hmm. And so it's trying out what, what does this U.S. relationship look like? We've, we've had a pretty quiet relationship uh, between the U.S. and India through much of the Cold War and, and early post-Cold War period. But maybe, maybe we should rethink that. And I think many countries are 
are going through a, a kind of a testing phase right now where I think the relationships aren't changing uh, for the United States are its allies, Japan, Korea, Australia in particular. Um, but even the Philippines, current political uh, challenges notwithstanding, there's a huge reservoir of support for the United States and affinity for the United States amongst Filipino people, at least according to polling. So I think, I think those relationships will remain strong. Um, the question will be, can, can countries who see their interests in common ways come together to support a way, whether that's an order or a system or just a series of, of cooperative actions, can they support a way to build a region that is what they're looking for it to become as opposed to something that they're not? That's interesting because earlier this year and I think last year also, there was a lot of talk about the Quad, the quadrilateral of four countries involving the US, Australia, Japan and India. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this revived after 10 years in 2008 when it fell through because countries had reservations about different things. Do you think that it will be possible that countries can come together? Because there have also been scholars in Asia who critique things like balancing and bandwagoning and say, oh, no, all of these are cold war concepts. They don't apply anymore to the region. So do you think that countries with common interests will be able to sort of coalesce um, into some formation of sorts? Do you think that's still applicable in today's world? I think it's absolutely applicable, but it's not inevitable. I think any kind of, of cooperation, any kind of agreement, any kind of uh, coalescence, to, to borrow your word, uh, will require leadership. And and that's because it's not easy, right? Even in, for the United States, right? Even in long-standing alliance relationships where we have numerous linkages at numerous levels and we understand each other's systems pretty well, that next step, whatever it is, always takes a lot of work. And leadership in a particular issue such as this, would also be required if um, your stakes are high. Is it that perhaps for all of these countries, their national interests aren't at stake to a point where they feel like they need to step up and take leadership? That is a really good question. I think it's easiest to demonstrate leadership when the stakes are highest um, and the urgency is there. Mm -hmm. I think it's often most impactful to show leadership when the stakes are low, but the signs are there. But doing that requires more courage because there's less public support. Mm -hmm. And ultimately then what you're leading people to is a better future that avoids the problem rather than you're in the problem and now everyone sees it and now you're finding a way out of the problem. And so I think groupings like the Quad have the potential to be very impactful because they are relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. They're relatively easy to do but they send an important signal to the region that countries that share objectives, that have common interests, are willing to work together in even modest ways to demonstrate that common commitment. And whether it's the Quad or something on trade and economics or something in, in a different sphere, I think there are many ways for countries to come together and show that leadership. That's interesting. At this point, let's take a break. India's a massive subcontinent, home to truly stunning diversity. Behind the veils of smoke 
that obscure our thriving cities, our history is still alive, glimmering like sequins, waiting to be discovered. And if you, like me, are straining to hear the echoes of our past, this podcast is for you. I'm Anirudh Kanisetti, a history and geopolitics researcher, and I host Echoes of India, a history podcast about India, by Indians, and for Indians. In Echoes, we journey through the complex histories of South Asia and what they can teach us about our globalized world. Tune in every Wednesday on ivmpodcast.com or your favorite podcast app. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsini Hariharan. I'm just going to bounce these off you because you served in government and you're familiar mm-hmm. with defense. Uh, another critique that I've heard some scholars in India and Asia saying um, that America's uh, pivot, its rebalance um, are good things for Asia. But whenever America signals commitment to Asia, it's often draws with its relationships elsewhere in the world, like Europe or the Middle East. Um, and therefore, it's not able to devote as many resources as it thinks it would because context change and mm-hmm. conflicts change. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that? Because resources are limited. There is only so much that our country can devote in a particular sphere. So I was serving in the Defense Department at the Pentagon when the, the rebalance to Asia formulation was was released and there was an active debate whether it should be the pivot or the rebalance mm-hmm. and i think the general consensus was pivot sells better it's an easier uh, bumper sticker mm-hmm. and it, it has more impact mm-hmm. but rebalance is more accurate because pivot suggests turning away from something and a rebalance is a shift without mm-hmm. without surrendering or, or turning away i personally think that the risk of, you know, over-promising and under-delivering is high. Uh, there's, I think, both from the American public and in many of our partner and allied countries, a very high level of expectation of what the United States is capable of, often in excess of the reality. Uh, but the, the risk of over-committing forces or, or resources is is possible and having to reprioritize in a way that undercuts or undermines a previous argument or commitment is there. I think in terms of the rebalance to the, the Asia-Pacific as a strategy, though, there's been too much focus on the military side of it mm-hmm. and not enough focus on the, the non-military components, uh, both within the United States and from, from foreign partners. Part of this was the Defense Department was an early mover. Mm-hmm. So the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine Corps came up very quickly with, here's how we are going to demonstrate mm-hmm. commitment to this policy. Those are autonomous things, right? The U.S. controls its military. It can, it can shift things around pretty quickly. Trade, much harder. And, you know, the change of political parties in, in Washington has set back proponents of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and other trade agreements in ways that uh, people who saw that as a key element of U.S. commitment in Asia, that's a challenge. The the diplomatic efforts to to build consensus, I think, have also stalled somewhat over the past six or seven years because of personnel shortages and other issues. That said, I think the basic concept undergirding the rebalance to the Pacific, which is over the next 
coming, you know, over the next 15 to 20, 30, 40 years, American prosperity, American success will be closely linked to rising prosperity, growing trade, deepening relationships in Asia. And so the fundamental piece of the rebalance policy, in my mind, is how does the United States continue to do those things, deepen relationships, build trust, uh, ensure that there's a security environment that allows for sovereign interactions, for trade interactions, for increased connectivity between countries, not just with the United States. Because fundamentally, I think that my lesson learned from U.S. engagement in the world is, sure, the U.S. benefits from having allies and partners, and they benefit from having the United States as an ally or a partner. But the real benefit is a network benefit when U.S. allies and partners are also working with each other because then, then you have multiple parties trying to achieve maybe not 100% of what each of them wants, but 70, 80, 90%. Mm-hmm. And they can achieve it more quickly and in a more enduring way when they work together. All right, that's interesting. So for the last couple of months, we've been hearing of U.S.-China tensions, particularly in trade. Why do you think this has resulted in where do you think this trade spat, trade war, whatever you want to call it, is heading? I think there's been a growing sense in Washington over probably the last 10 or 12 years that the strategy and the concept that uh, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton embarked on regarding uh, integrating China into the global community, having it be a full participant, uh, investing in China so that China could then invest in the world – it's not working. China has been happy to be the recipient of investment, but it has a different uh, outcome that it's looking for than a WTO rules-based fair system of economic competition. Instead, I think the consensus is emerging in Washington that China is very much focused on making sure that China holds the number one spot in key spaces. And it's utilizing and leveraging aspects of the free trading system that help it, but it's working around those to undermine other countries' advantages when that system doesn't advantage China. So specifically in the U.S. context, theft of intellectual property to the tune of potentially hundreds of billions of dollars of theft over 25 years, the the use of subsidies and other benefits to state corporations uh, at home so that they can sell goods cheaply abroad, Uh, often as a side effect, not a direct purpose of China's policies. And then the third is restrictive market access or really making it costly, both in terms of regulatory risk and in terms of transfer of intellectual property through joint ventures so that foreign firms, not just U.S. firms, but foreign firms have a much harder time competing first in China's market and then as essentially a rebound internationally. So that's a a really long way of saying it's not clear that China is living up to its WTO commitments. It's not clear that China is supportive in whole of the global economic system that we thought in 1998 and 2000 and 2001 that it would become supportive of. Mm -hmm. And so there's a recalibration as to whether or not it makes sense to continue the relationship as we thought. So China's also argued that the rules in the world system 
don't take cognizance of uh, how far it's come or the power dynamics that it has today. Um, and that these rules are therefore unfair to it um, as a player in the international system. Um, so how would you respond to that? China's argument on rules being unfair or being formed before it was a participant in the making of the rules, I think is starting to ring hollow. Because while it is accurate that, yes, the WTO and, and other trading rules were created before China was a major player, what China has not articulated is how those rules disadvantage China, especially China in particular. There are many other countries who rose from low levels of economic development to being world leaders under that trading system. So how is China somehow a unique case of disadvantage in that system? If there is a rationale that supports that, I haven't heard it from the Chinese yet. Where do you think we're going to head now? If this is status quo, then where do you think that the system is headed? Where do you think U.S. Uh, relations with countries in Asia are headed? Where do you think relations with China are headed? On trade or broadly? Broadly. We will have to wait and see hmm. to, to have a sense of where things are going. Right now, I think that the U.S. government is having a hard time developing and implementing a strategy because uh, President Trump is not one who operates from a, a playbook and a strategy and directs a bureaucracy and mobilizes resources and, and pushes forward in a way a typical uh, government leader would. He is much more uh, instinctive, much more reactive, um, and much more impulsive, I think, than most leaders we've seen in the U.S. or other countries has been. So I think the upcoming U.S. election uh, will be one test to see whether an incoming crop, many of whom will be new in the Congress, in the, the House of Representatives, whatever party wins, there are so many retirements that it will be interesting to see if the new arrivals in Congress are pro-neutral or against more U.S. engagement in the world, whether diplomatic, economic, or defense. Um, because the ballast that Congress provides in U.S. foreign policy is, is usually to keep it kind of, you know, a couple degrees left, a couple degrees right, but generally in the middle. With so much potential turnover, we could see a significant shift. Um, not necessarily, but it's possible. So the, the current long-term projection, I think, is highly uncertain pending the outcome of that election. All right, and... Just personally, what do you mm -hmm. think the U.S. should do? My read on the last 70 years of U.S. engagement in the world is when countries are given an opportunity to compete in a fair system, when they're given an opportunity to determine their own future, when individuals are given an educational and social opportunity, good things happen. And uh, I haven't yet seen an alternative to the the post-World War II order that offers more of those things than less. And until I see that, I think the U.S. should continue to push forward, refine, adjust, uh, improve, sure. But I don't think the U.S. should pull back. I don't think that the United States should, uh, you know, throw away trade, uh, free trade agreements. It shouldn't pull back forces from its allies pending clear shifts in the security environment or the economic environment. Uh, 
Um, so I think continuity provides the best opportunity for progress as opposed to radical change. That's a very quotable quote right at the end there. I have one last question yeah. that I ask everyone. Uh, what is one essential reading for anyone who wants to know more about this? Just one, if you could pick. It doesn't have to be the best, but just one. I'm just trying to think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would actually offer the, the piece you started this conversation with, which mm -hmm. was America's Pacific Century. So that was Hillary Clinton's piece in, in 2012 in Foreign Policy. It, it is dated at this point, but I think it offers an accurate vision mm -hmm. of the benefits for the United States in engaging with the region. And it's a good jumping off point for American analysts and friends abroad to say, are we still in that place? Is this still achievable or should we look at something else? All right. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Hamsi. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. If you're interested in the U.S. role in the Indo-Pacific or security or industry, then I've attached a bunch of extra readings for you in the episode description. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter, where my handle is at the rate Hamsini H, or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IBM podcast app, on Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else. I'll be back next Tuesday. Hi, I'm Ronnie Scruella, first-generation entrepreneur and co-founder at Upgrad. My podcast, Dreaming With Your Eyes Open, is a companion podcast to my best-selling book, Dream With Your Eyes Open. On this podcast, I talk to Amit Doshi, founder of IBM Podcast, about my entrepreneurial journey. I walk you through my successes and failures, mostly my failures, and the lessons that I learned from my experiences, family, and colleagues. What was my first entrepreneurial venture? Why I chose Japanese cartoons over animation cartoons on Hangama? Why did I sell my stake at UTV to Disney? Find out all this and more on the Ronnie Scruella podcast, Dreaming with Your Eyes Open. New episodes out every Tuesday on the IBM Podcasts app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Vishal Gondal, an entrepreneur. I've had the chance to meet and understand how some of the super achievers have hacked their way to success and they have done spectacular innovations. Now I take a closer look at these people's lives to find out what lies beneath the force only on the Vishal Gondal Show. Episodes out fortnightly on Wednesdays on the IVM website, app or your favorite podcasting platform.